Profile. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Claire Musters. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm talking to Kay Warren. Kay is an international speaker, Bible teacher and best-selling author, but is probably best known as co-founder of Megachurch Saddleback Church alongside her husband, Rick Warren. She's also an advocate for those living with mental illness, HIV and AIDS, as well as those orphaned. I asked her about her candid new book, Sacred Privilege. So let's take a listen in. Can I just start by asking you a little bit more, which you do talk about in your book, about your your own background. um, And um, you were obviously always involved in church because your dad was a pastor. um, But how Mm -hmm. you you, um, came to faith, what your own journey of faith was. Sure. Um, Yeah, my journey of faith um, is is really a very simple child's uh, journey to faith. I grew grew up in a Christian home. Um, My dad was a pastor. And so I was in church from the time that my mother brought me home from the hospital. I don't remember really not being part of church. And so um, it was really natural. I feel like it was a very natural um, process. I heard uh, God talked about as a loving God. I, I, I didn't really understand what Jesus' death meant as an eight-year-old, but I knew enough to know that, that I had sinned. I had done things that separated me from God, and I wanted to be a friend of God. And, and the way to do that was to, in, in the language we used, accept Jesus into my heart. And so as an eight-year-old girl, um, I did that. We, I was in a denomination where we um, we would come to the front of the church. You know, mm-hmm. there was an invitation giving, and I walked the aisle to up to the front where my pastor daddy stood, ready ready to receive um, you know anyone who was professing faith in Christ, and and that's what I did. I walked to the front of our church. I told my daddy I wanted to accept Jesus as my Savior. He he prayed with me. Um, he cried with me, and um, so it was just a really simple, natural process. I was baptized soon after that by my dad, so I have very, very warm memories of, of coming to Christ. Do you think growing up in church, you felt that, that a weight of expectation upon you that you had to behave in a certain way and be a certain type of person? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I most definitely felt that pressure to, to be perfect. To um, And that was a, a time in which pastors and their families didn't talk about their struggles, didn't talk about anything wrong, any problems. We, we had to present this face at church that um, I, I had to know all the answers. Um, I, I, I remember feeling like I am in trouble either way. I, I'm expected to, there are things that I'm expected to do because I'm the pastor's daughter, and there are things I'm forbidden to do because I'm the pastor's daughter. And um, I think I was a very sensitive child and uh, grew up sensitive to other people's approval and wanting other people's approval, definitely wanting my parents' approval, wanting that of, of other church members. So for me, 
Um, uh, it didn't take long for for I, a, a strong perfectionism to develop in me, and I didn't have a lot of room for grace in my faith. I was pretty legalistic. Uh, mm. I was in a very conservative denomination, and uh, there were a lot of things that were forbidden to us, and and yet I knew that there were internal struggles from a from a pretty young child, a young you know, twelve year old or whatever, I I was had a porn fascination. Yeah, you're very open and, right the way through your book, aren't you? And right at the start you talk about um some of those issues um in your childhood, like the family secrets you felt you had to keep, the early signs of depression, the fact you were molested as a child and also, as you've just said, your um porn habit. Some some people might be shocked that you've included those kind of details in your book, but you must have felt it was particularly important to do that and be honest about your background. I do. I, I because I feel like anything that we keep as a secret um develops power over us mm. and it it perpetuates a cycle of of shame and guilt. Um because growing up in the home that I did, I obviously knew that pornography was not a good thing. Um but I also have to say that we're talking in the in the 1960s and porn was not readily available. You know, it just wasn't. Mm-hmm. And and so it's not like today where it's at, at your fingertips 24-7 in every area, you know, that you can think of. It, it was limited. So I came upon it in limited fashion. But when I did, there was a, it had a hold on me. Um, and I think that the that power of, oh, I am never going to look at that again. Oh my goodness, I did it. I looked yeah. at it. I am terrible. I am I am a terrible Christian. I am a terrible person. I will never do that again. Oh no, I did it again. I'm a terrible person. That that cycle of saying I'm never going to do that and then doing it and then feeling the guilt and the shame, um that becomes a powerful driver inside of us and it can be over it can be an addiction it can be over just a habit you know something that we think I'm I'm just not going to say that ever again I'm not going to say that word again and then we do it and the enemy um he takes those kind of secret places in us and um beats us with them you know emotionally beats us beats us up and so I was in that cycle. Um, I'd been, as you say, I was molested as a as a small child. It it created a lot of confusion about sex and sexuality, and then my normal developing curiosity about sex and sexuality got hooked around um, pornography. And yet, I loved Jesus with all of my heart. I loved Jesus, but there were secrets and there were habits that I just simply felt too ashamed to talk about and I didn't know how to break them and I didn't know how to be set free and I didn't know what to do with it. And so because of that, I have great empathy mm-hmm. for for anyone who is living in that place of that cycle of sin, defeat, shame, remorse, sin, defeat, shame, remorse. And yeah. um, I I know that when we when we say, hey, I'm just like you, 
I'm just like you, and, and I have found freedom, and I pray for that freedom for you. It gives us encouragement to think. It gives us hope to think we can change. And you talk very openly in your book, um, incredibly openly, about the, the struggles in the early days of your ministry, but also in your marriage. And at one point say, to say marriage has been hard is as severe an understatement as I can muster up. Um, why do you think that we can struggle so much in our relationships and yet don't open up to other people? And how did you guys get to the point of actually asking for help? One of the details of our story is we just didn't know each other well. Um, we had one of those, it felt like biblical um, courtships where God just said, you're going to marry her. Rick said, okay. Um, he said to me, you're going to marry that guy. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And, and so we did, but we didn't really know each other. And we were separated a lot of that time. Um, he was in Japan and then in another part of the state. And, and it was the days before cell phones and computers and and uh, we were both poor, so we relied on writing letters to each other. So we just didn't know each other when we got married. And neither of us recognized the power of, of, the, of the way that, of how I had been shaped by being molested as a child. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he certainly didn't know that I had um, a fascination with pornography. So when we got married, really nothing worked. Uh, we didn't know how to communicate. We fought about everything that they ever tell you you're going to fight about. We fought about money. We fought about sex because sex didn't work. We were both um, we were both virgins, and and we expected we bought into the myth that if you are a virgin, then automatically you're going to have a great sex life. And <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't usually work quite that way. There's it, you know it takes a little more work than that. But yeah. but so we were so disappointed, and we didn't understand how my being molested was going to affect how I even felt about sex. We just didn't know. So we fought about sex, and we fought about money, of which we had none. We fought about about, you know, our in-laws. We fought about when to have kids. And then we fought about how we, how we communicated, which we didn't know how to do that. So we were so young, um, came into marriage with these expectations that um, because we love Jesus, that everything would work out great. And when it didn't, we were devastated. Um, and he was a youth pastor at the time. Uh, we didn't feel like we could tell our senior pastor of the struggles it just was so miserable. And we both began to fall apart emotionally in different ways. He got physically sick um, from depression and was hospitalized, um, not in a psychiatric hospital, but a hospital um, just because he was, he couldn't function. He was just, he was fainting in it. And so there was a physical side for him. And for me, um, I remember just sobbing constantly. It's like, this is, this is not the way I thought life was going to be. This is not the way I thought marriage Absolutely. was going to be. That is exactly what I said to myself for quite a few years, because we did exactly the same thing, thought this is not what life's supposed to be like, but who want, we can't admit our problems because everybody else's lives look so perfect and it's not supposed to be well, like they did. this. Yeah. So how well, did we you... just kept thinking it was us. We yeah. just kept thinking it was yeah. our yeah. fault that we were bad Christians. So how did you get um, to that point of asking for help then? I think that there, the pain exceeded our shame. And the pain of a broken relationship, the pain of 
um, of our sexual relationship being just, you know, non-existent and the pain of thinking we were going to live the rest of our lives like this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I know. I can, that's all I can remember is that the pain exceeded the, the shame that we felt at being failures as Christians and, and as, um, as married people. And so there was a Christian counselor attached to our college and we started seeing him um, a little bit and, and realized that we weren't the utter failures that we thought we were, that other young couples had similar problems, that we weren't alone in that. And he began to start teaching us how to communicate and, um, and that very slow process of, of opening ourselves up to we long to know and be known. We all do, but we just didn't know how to do it. And so over the years um, that, that, and have gone to counseling many different times throughout our 42 years of marriage, I am a complete believer in Christian counseling and um, I, it, it has saved our marriage. Great. So what would you say is the most important factor in you and Rick staying the course in your marriage, but also in your ministry? In our marriage, it sound, this is going to sound trite and it's going to sound silly, but we, we took a vow. We made a promise to God on June 21st, 1975, in front of our friends and family and in front of God, we made a promise that we were going to stay together and that we were going to, through our marriage, reflect the glory of God. And even though we didn't know how to do that, we could never move away from that vow. And when I say that, I really want to be quick to acknowledge it, it was because we both felt that way. You you can't save your marriage alone. If one of us had had not... If, if both of us had not been committed to that, we would not be together today. So I mean no judgment toward anyone who has gone through a divorce. You simply cannot, you might want with all your heart to save your marriage. And if your partner doesn't, um, you can't make them love you and you can't make them stay with you. But we were both committed to um, marriage um, for all of our lives. And throughout the years when we would have difficulties and arguments and and our children were aware of those, you know, sometimes and as all children do, mommy, are you and daddy going to get a divorce? You know, I mean, most kids ask that question at some point, they get frightened and, and we would say to them, no, we are not. We will always work this out. We have made a promise to God and we make a promise to you. We will always work this out. And so not only did we have this sense of we'd made a vow to God, but we had made a vow to our children. And I can't count the number of times that, you know, we would be so frustrated with each other because Rick and I are polar opposites in just about every way you can think of. And so we'd get in an argument about something and, um, and you know, inside you'd just be going, oh, this is so hard. I do not want to be married to you. You are driving me crazy. I can't do this. You know, you have these feelings. And and so, and there'd be, it'd just be, oh, I just, I can't do this anymore. And then the picture would come in my mind. Could I really go and look my children in the face and say, you know how I told you that daddy and I were always going to stay together. We were always going to work it out. Well, sorry, we can't do that. And I couldn't bear it. I could not bear. That is a very strong motivating factor, isn't it? You also talk about that, your 
your kids, if you're in ministry, your kids need to have that sense of heart of owning the dream as well, which is very interesting. My, my children are um, nine and 12, and we're very much um, aware of that fact now because my husband's a pastor. And um, so how did you learn how to do that in practice? How did you ensure that your children felt totally secure in your love and acceptance in, in what must have been a very busy um, life uh, centered around your church? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a little bit, you know, while I really feel like a husband and wife need to have a shared vision and shared dream together for ministry, it's, it's, it's a little harder to make that make that happen in your children's life because, of course, you can't make that happen. You can just um, create an environment in your home that hopefully makes it easier for them to to feel that, that similar um, passion or, or at least an understanding of what it is their, their mom and dad are doing. Um, and I think that it really is up to us as parents to create um, a very stable, loving, grace-filled home um, where children understand there are second chances, where they understand that um, God's love for them cannot change so that they they run to him in their difficulties, not away, not away from, from him. Um, I talk in the book that, that our prime job as parents is not to instill... Um, you know, the 10 most basic systematic theology points, um, while that's important, what's most important is that children know through the way we love them that God loves them. That's, that's our job. That's our main job is to, is to love them well so that they um, can easily believe that there is a Heavenly Father who loves them well. And um, so I talk in the book about that we, we love them we let them grow and then we let them go. You know, we let them know that God loves them and we do. We let them grow through stages and then we let them go to make mistakes. And um, I think that that's really all we can do. Um, so how did you... And then the other thing I would add, sorry, I just really think it's important. It's it's not only it's the love, but that we live a life of integrity before them. Mm-hmm. If they see a, If they see a family, if they grow up in a family in which there is a huge disconnect between the way mom and dad act at church and the way mom and dad act at home, we cannot expect that our kids will love God or want to be a part of the church. There has to be a a life of consistent um, integrity at home so that we're the same both places. And if we're not, then we're asking our kids to live lies and we're asking them to live with secrets and it, why would any kid want to be a part of ministry when mom and dad are one way at church and completely different at home? Well, you're very honest about the fact that Matthew had mental health issues. And I just wanted to ask, you said that he gave his life to Jesus at a young age, but then he became more questioning of his faith and asked questions about why God allowed him to suffer. How did you um, walk those difficult years with him and um, support and validate him and take that pressure because so many people expect pastors' kids to behave in a certain way, don't they? How did you help alleviate that pressure from him? Um, well, again, we were trying to um, create in our home um, just that place of um, that it, that we were a grace-filled home that we didn't 
live by rules and that we didn't do what we did because we were a pastor and family. We have really tried always to tell our kids, we do what we do because we think this is what it means to follow Jesus, not because of what your dad does as a profession. Um, and anytime they would try to throw that back at me, oh, you're just you're just saying that because dad's the pastor, or you're making us do that because dad's the pastor, we were quick to correct that impression and say, nope, this is what we think. This is for all people who follow Christ, not because of what daddy does. Um, and so that set up an expectation of we're not we're not doing something for what other people think. We're doing it because this is how we think we can please God. And I think that's an important foundation for kids. It gives them a reason um, for some of the limitations or restrictions or something in our lives that we have. And then as it came with Matthew, um, again, we were really fortunate that because Saddleback is a really loving place, um, Sunday school teachers and youth workers and people have always been very kind to Matthew. They, um, they were just kind. They weren't cruel. They didn't treat him differently. Um, they didn't make him feel bad about um, living with mental illness. They just came along to support him. And I, I think that that's crucial that that kids really know that no matter what it is they're struggling with, we're going to love them and accept them and that we did our best to put them around other adults who also had that same view of them. And I know it doesn't always happen that way, but I think that that's certainly the ideal. Yeah, that's great. You have faced some huge things in your lives as a family. You've had breast cancer and melanoma, and obviously, sadly, your son Matthew took his own life. How have you learned to deal with those really difficult life experiences um, and deal with the lack of privacy uh, with humor and grace, which you talk about in your book? Well, I'm not afraid to seek um, privacy. I'm not afraid to, um, particularly when, when Matthew died and we didn't go to church for four months. We, um, simply, we were doing good to, to get out of bed in, in the morning, let alone, uh, go and minister or, um, be in a place where people could, um, I mean, many wanted to comfort us. It wasn't that we were running. We just were so broken and devastated by Matthew's death. And so we we didn't go to church for four months. We stayed at home. We stayed um, mostly with just our family and our closest friends and learned slowly how to begin to live again. Mm-hmm. And when we did come back... Um, to church and more actively into ministry, we've really tried to give ourselves a lot of grace and um, to do what we felt we could do. And um, we did it regardless of what anybody else was going to say or do. I didn't feel like I owed anyone any explanation um, for um, why we were so devastated. If they didn't understand, they just didn't understand. And we were going to um, do what we needed to do to heal and begin to and begin to live again. So, um, and we also decided we weren't going to try to keep any of it secret. We weren't going to pretend that Matthew died any other way than, than he did. And well, first of all, it was a scrolling headline on CNN. So, um, you know, we didn't have the option to have, quote, privacy, um, complete privacy. But I just don't believe there's it's not a shame uh, if a loved one dies by suicide. Um, I, I have people still whisper 
to me that their loved one died by suicide 20 years years ago and they're not talking about it and nobody knows you know that their dad died by suicide or their son died by suicide or um, and we just decided we weren't going to do that that we weren't it wasn't a cause for shame. Matthew lived with mental illness, and he fought as long and hard as he could. And um, he lived a tortured life, and um, mental illness got the best of him. There's no shame in, in illness. Um, and so we weren't going to be ashamed, and we weren't going to accept shame from others. And we were going to do our best to help others break through the shame that they were experiencing um, if they had had a loss to suicide. So um, part of it was just a determination that um, we understand that mental illness is an illness. And um, for any of your readers who have a loved one who has a mental illness or has suicidal thoughts or your reader has suicidal thoughts. There's no shame in that. It's it's get help, talk to other people, you know, um, there is hope. And we decided we were going to let that be the message of Matthew's death, that there is always hope and um, that w- the church needs to be that place of hope. That was Claire Musters speaking to Kay Warren on the profile today. Remarkably frank interview there from Kay, opening up about a whole wide range of subjects. If you'd like to hear more from Kay, you can read a printed version of that interview at premierchristianity.com. It's also available, of course, in print in Premier Christianity magazine. And Justin Briley now is going to explain how you can get yourself a free copy. There's a knife crime epidemic in our capital city. In the February edition of Premier Christianity magazine, meet the inspiring Christians bringing God to the gang leaders in the battle for London. Plus, Kay Warren talks about how her marriage to megachurch leader Rick Warren nearly hit rock bottom and what brought them back again. Sam Hales asks whether evangelicalism can survive in the age of Trump, where Sutton on what to do when God doesn't heal, and the amazing account of how Corrie Ten Boom's unshakable courage saw thousands of Jews rescued in World War II. All that plus much more. Ask for your free copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Why not go ahead and do exactly that? Get hold of the latest print issue of Premier Christianity. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to Claire Musters and Kay Warren chat today on the Profile podcast. I'm delighted to say we're actually releasing two episodes of the Profile today. If you'd like to hear the other interview we're putting out, it's between Marcus Jones, who's head of news here at Premier, and Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. Really interesting chat. Do encourage you to check out that podcast, also releasing today on the Profile. And do, of course, check in again. We're releasing plenty of great interviews in the coming weeks. Don't want you to miss any of them. If you're able to spread the word, we'd love it if you can rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word about the Profile podcast. Do appreciate all the support you're able to offer us. But now, from all the team here at Premier, it's a goodbye from us, and we will see you next time.